This audio teaching is provided by segula.net. You are listening to our study series on Luke Acts. All right, welcome to session seven of our series on Luke Acts. Today we're going to be looking at Luke chapters 7 and 8. So, a quick recap of some of what we've been through. Uh, Last week we were looking at the Sermon on the Plain in Luke chapter 6. And we saw how this sermon is related to Yeshua's mission of preaching repentance and the kingdom of God. Uh, Specifically, Yeshua begins the sermon by talking about the promise of receiving the kingdom. Um, The poor will receive the kingdom. And then uh, at the end, he finishes it with this parable of the wise and foolish builders, which I argue is a veiled reference to the destruction of the temple. So the wise builder is the one who hears Yeshua's teaching and does it. And as a result, the house, i.e. the temple, is not destroyed. Whereas the foolish builder is the one who hears Yeshua's teaching and does not do it. And the result is this terrible cataclysmic destruction. The house falls. So in other words, Yeshua is presenting Israel with two options. Repent and receive the kingdom or fail to repent and experience judgment. Yeshua's mission mirrors that of John the Baptist, who preached virtually the same thing. Repent in order to ward off the coming coming wrath, right? This The judgment that was looming over the Jewish people. Um, that was what John talks about in Luke chapter 3. So in these next few sessions, we're, I believe we're going to see these themes uh, developed more vividly. So today, I want to start us off with a question. And that question pertains to the purpose of the parables. So we're going to encounter uh, some of Yeshua's parables today. And the, the question of why did Yeshua teach in parables comes up. So if you have your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 8 verse 10. In this verse, Yeshua uh, is speaking to his disciples and he says to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God but for others what I teach is in parables so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand so uh, that's the That's the biblical answer, why Yeshua taught in parables. It says it right there, right? But it doesn't doesn't entirely clear up the matter. Um, There's there's two main positions here on why Yeshua taught in parables. Uh, The first position is that Yeshua taught the crowds in parables in order to obscure his message. So the idea here behind this is that the parables, Yeshua's parables were intentionally obfuscating. They were intentionally trying to conceal the message that Yeshua was sharing, right? They're cryptic. They're hard to understand. And uh, he would only 
explain what they meant to his disciples. So everyone got to hear the parable, but only Yeshua's disciples got to hear what they actually meant. The crowds were left kind of in the dark. That's that's one idea of what the, the, the purpose of the parables. The uh, second position is that Yeshua taught the crowds in parables in order to help them understand the message. Parables are, by nature, easier material to digest, so he he presents that to the crowds while he reserves his more advanced teaching for his disciples alone. So, in looking at this question, um, I want us to think for a moment about what what evidence might people point to in order to support these two conclusions? Is there any evidence in the immediate vicinity of Luke 8, verse 10, um, or from what you know about Yeshua's parables that would point to this first option that Yeshua taught them in order to obscure his message, or that would support the second option? Oh, first he tells the crowd the parable of the farmer. Yep. And then he is to his disciple what it actually means when the seed falls and, you know, the one on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, accept it with joy. So he goes on to explain to his disciple what it means, mm-hmm. the different type of seeds and where they fall. Yeah. So, so that, that kind of seems to support the first position, right? That, yes. That Yeshua taught these parables um, as a way of kind of obscuring his teaching and then instead of stating them plainly, they, these were kind of like riddles. And then only the disciples got to hear what they actually meant. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's good. Um, well, and another might be just what he says in, in verse 10. Uh, to you it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom, but for others, you know, they're in parables so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. So it kind of implies that, uh, it implies that these parables were given in order that the people would not understand, right? At least that's, that seems to be what it's saying at first glance. So, yeah, you can see why people would come to this first conclusion that Yeshua taught the crowds in parables in order to obscure his message. What are some reasons, do you think, why people might come to the second conclusion that that Yeshua taught the crowds in parables in order to help them understand his message? Are there any things... Uh, any any reasons that you can think of why people might argue that instead? Because it's a lot easier to comprehend and remember the content in story form. Right. <laughs> exactly. Stories are by nature easier to digest, right? Um, so, so that's a big thing. Why would he bother to distill these mysteries of the kingdom, as he says in verse 10, uh, into story, into these memorable stories, if the purpose was not to convey his message, right? Maybe another another thing we could add to that is that 
Yeshua wasn't the only person that taught in parables, right? Uh, there were uh, this was a genre of teaching that was common uh, in, and we see them all throughout rabbinic literature. Uh, we, there's lots and lots of parables in rabbinic literature. It wasn't it wasn't something that uh, was only Yeshua taught in, right? And and the purpose of a parable, uh, as we see them in rabbinic literature, the purpose of a parable is to it's like a sermon illustration, right? It's to convey a teaching and help to make it more memorable. Um, I want to just look at a couple examples here. Here's, here's a few examples from rabbinic literature. Uh, Rabbi Nachman compared the use of a parable to a thicket of reeds which no one could get through until a wise man took a scythe and cut some of the reeds down and then everyone began to go through the path he had cut. So there you have a parable about a parable, right? This is this is how parables work. Um, you know, there's this thicket of reeds no one can get through. It's, con you know, it's confusing, right? And a wise man comes and he clears a path. That's what a parable does. Okay, here's another one. Rabbi Yossi said, Imagine a big basket full of fruit and vegetables, but without any handles, so that it cannot be lifted until a wise man comes and makes handles for it. Then it can be carried in the hands. So in this parable... A parable is likened to the handles that enable you to, like, grasp something that's otherwise too heavy, but has valuable stuff in it, right? Uh, here's another one. Rabbi Sheila said, Imagine a large jar filled with hot water, but without any handles, so that it cannot be carried until someone comes and makes a handle for it. After that, it can be carried by its handle. That's basically the same idea. And here's another one. I like this one. Rabbi Hanina said, Imagine a deep well containing cold water, chilled, delicious, and pure water, but no one could get a drink from it until one man came and, nodding rope to rope and cord to cord, drew from it and drank, and then all began to draw and drink. In the same way, proceeding from one subject to another, from one parable to another, parables penetrate to the deepest meaning of the Torah. Okay, so if we compare this whole idea of speaking in parables to what we see in rabbinic literature, you know, we would be inclined to favor the second option. Yeshua taught the crowds in parables in order to help them understand his message, right? It, to, to his disciples, he didn't have to speak in parables because they could presumably handle more advanced kind of teaching methods, um, but the the parables were meant to simplify and make things easier to understand. Okay, so I want to take a quick look at the way the synoptic gospels uh, compare the, the the different ways that they explain Yeshua's use of parables. Right? Uh, notice that Matthew, Mark, and Luke contain lots of parables. I don't know if you've ever noticed this or not, but the Gospel of John doesn't have any parables in it. Uh, the Gospel of John is a very different uh, style of writing, you could say, right? Um, there are places where we see metaphors, like Yeshua says, I am the vine, you are the branches, but it, it's not presented in John like a parable, like it is in the Synoptic Gospels. So, so that's something that's unique about the Synoptics, is they preserve Yeshua's parables um, and so we'll take a look at that in a second. But 
but for now, um, notice that the way Luke says it, to you it has been given to know the, know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. And then, of course, Luke here is quoting from the prophet Isaiah, or Yeshua is quoting from the prophet Isaiah, right? Um, look at Mark's version. To you, it has been, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables. And then skip down to here. I don't know why they threw that up. They threw that other verse in the middle, but it's from later to try and parallel with Matthew, right? So for those outside, everything is in parables so that they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Uh, and then look at Matthew. Matthew says it a little different. He says, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Uh, and then he says, For to the one who has, more will be given, and he who he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And then he goes on and quotes Isaiah explicitly and gives a long quotation there. Um, but notice that Matthew puts it a little different, right? For Matthew, he speaks in parables because they don't see and understand. In Mark and in Luke, he speaks in parables so that they do not understand. You see the difference? In Matthew, Matthew, the way Matthew tells it, uh, we might be inclined to more inclined to follow this second option. The way Mark and Luke tell it, it's it's hard to escape the idea that that Yeshua is that there's something being hidden. He's telling these parables in order to confirm or um, affirm Israel's lack of understanding about the kingdom a bit of a puzzle. I want to come back to that uh, later. <laughs> we'll, we'll, get, we'll get to chapter 8 in a moment. Uh, first, I want to take a look at a couple things in chapter 7, and then we'll dive more into the parables. So, first of all, we've got in the beginning of Luke chapter 7, uh, we've got these two miracles that are related, right? So we've got... Uh, this miracle where Yeshua heals a centurion servant and then Yeshua raises a, a widow's son from the dead. I don't want to spend too much time on these, but there's there's two points I just want to point out. Uh, first of all, uh, this is uh, the centurion that we meet here in Luke chapter 7 is going to be mirrored by a centurion that we meet in the book of Acts. So this goes back to this concept of the unity between Luke and Acts, right? That these, these books are meant to be read together. Um, that's the way we're approaching it in this series. So the centurion in, in Luke 7 foreshadows Cornelius the centurion in Acts chapter 10. Both of these are depicted as well, they're centurions, they're Gentiles, but they're depicted as righteous. They love the Jewish people and they serve God. Um, 
in different ways. It's more explicit with Cornelius about him serving God, but but the friendly portrait of the centurion we get here kind of prepares us to encounter this friendly centurion in Acts chapter 10. Okay, the second thing I want to notice is if you look at uh, after Yeshua raises the widow's son, uh, look at verse 16, at the reaction of the crowd. It says, Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report spreads about him throughout all Judea. Uh, this is uh, an interesting thing that they say. They say God has visited his people. It's this Greek word, uh, episkepsito, um, episkeptome. Uh, this, this word is often used to translate the Hebrew word pakad, right? And uh, we see this term, th this Greek word has already shown up twice in Luke. And this is a significant word. Um, if you look at Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 1, verse 68. This is the beginning of Zechariah's prophetic song. Zechariah says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And then again, down in verse 78, Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. So there's this idea of God visiting his people. Uh, we're going to see this in a future session, but this term is used by the prophet to denote two different activities of God. First, God's visiting his people for redemption. God redeeming his people by visiting them. Second, God's judgment. God's visitation upon his people in judgment. Right? You know that the saying uh, from the Torah that he visits the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation. It's that same word, right? So there's an ambiguity in this term. It can be taken in a positive sense. It can also be taken in a negative sense of judgment. And I think that amb ambiguity is significant here. Will Yeshua's ministry result in redemption or in judgment? And that's the big question that uh, we're seeing as we're going through the gospel. All right, let's take a look at Luke 7, 18 to 35, this uh, where John the Baptist sends messengers with some questions. I want to get someone to read, uh, we're going to read verses 18 to 23. So would someone be willing to volunteer to read John 7, sorry, Luke 7, 18 to 23. I could read it for you. Sure, that'd be great. Okay, Luke 7, 18. Then the disciples of John reported to him concerning all these things. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Yeshua, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? And that very hour he cured many of infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits, and to many blind he gave sight. Yeshua answered and said to them, Go 
and tell John the things you have seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Great, thank you. Has this uh, ever seemed strange to you? Why is why is John the Baptist suddenly questioning uh, who Yeshua is? Right, like it seems seems like he was this fiery, confident preacher pointing the way to Yeshua, and uh, especially from the Gospel of John, we get this. Uh, it, it's clear that he was privileged to witness the Holy Spirit descending on Yeshua, right? It seems like that was not something that everyone saw. That was something that um, possibly only Yeshua and John the Baptist saw. And he knew that the Messiah was going to be the person upon whom the Spirit came and remained. It talks about that in, in John, the Gospel of John. So how could he go from from that to suddenly wondering, is Yeshua really the one. Now, first of all, uh, what exactly is John asking here? Uh, some people have suggested that when he says, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another, that what he really means is, are you the only Messiah that is to come or are we supposed to look for an additional Messiah besides you? Or is, are, are there two, you know, in other words, is this one Messiah or two? Um, it's kind of hard to make the Greek say that. I mean, it's possible, right? But, you know, he's asking, um, so uh, are you the Erchomenos, the, the coming person? Um, or should we wait for another one? It's hard to see that as asking whether there's one or two messiahs. You know, the coming one. Sounds like there's just one. So, it, in my thinking, John is asking, are you the Messiah or not? Right? This is what he wants to know. So, how could he be in such a place of doubt right now? Right? Well, I think one thing uh, that is safe to say is, I mean, look at where John is right now. He's in prison. He's, you know, Yeshua is supposed to take his place as king and usher in the messianic era, but John's rotting away in prison. <laughs> and you can imagine John trying to get updates from his disciples, right? So, like, you know, how's the progress? Has he raised an army yet? Is he planning to launch an attack soon? Like, how are things going? And we get the impression that Yeshua's ministry thus far is not fulfilling the expectations that John had. But what I'd like to suggest is that John's not the only one who's feeling this way, that really John is just the, the one with enough courage to address the elephant in the room. If we put together what we've seen in the Gospels so far, right, especially the first two chapters of Luke, over and over again in the first two chapters we get this uh, uh, confirmation that I mean, what, is what does the angel Gabriel tell Mary? That Yeshua is going to 
inherit the throne of David. He's going to sit on David's throne. He's going to rule as king over Israel, and his kingdom will never end, right? What does uh, it talk about in Mary's song when she utters this prophetic song? It's, you know, God's going to bring down the haughty, the arrogant, i.e. Rome, and he's going to raise up those who are lowly, which in the song it explicitly identifies as Israel. He's going to save Israel. In Zechariah's song, right? God's going to deliver Israel from her enemies, i.e. Rome and anyone else, right? So this, this is physical. This is political. This is uh, a tangible kingdom on earth that's being described in the first two chapters. And, and so far, what have we seen? We have seen Yeshua encountering, I mean, we talked a couple weeks ago about Yeshua's visit to Nazareth and this this event, which Luke fronts in the narrative, right? The other Gospels put it a little later, but Yeshua has that first. At the very beginning, the uh, programmatic event of Yeshua's ministry is him proclaiming this message and being rejected. Yeshua's mission, Yeshua's message being rejected by his people, right? Um, of course, not everyone rejected his message, but we get the impression that we're building up to a rejection, right? So, Yeshua so far has not met messianic expectations, right? There's some, there's a glaring sort of inconsistency that's building, right? So, um, John is expecting this king, and the people are expecting this king, and as readers of Luke Gospel, Luke's Gospel, we're also expecting a king who's going to reign on David's throne in Jerusalem. And instead, so far Yeshua's ministry is not meeting our expectation. So what do we make of what do we make of this? Well, a lot of scholars are going to say that Yeshua, well, first of all, have you, did you notice how cryptic Yeshua's response is? Yeshua doesn't just say, yes, I am, right? He Instead, he offers this, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who's not offended by me. So some scholars are going to argue the reason why Yeshua's reply is cryptic like this is because he's trying to redefine who Messiah is and he's trying to redefine Messiah's role. You guys thought that Messiah was going to come and be a king and destroy Rome and, and that's not it at all. The role of Messiah is to come and and uh, have this ministry of teaching and healing and then uh, die and rise again for your sins. And that's all Messiah is supposed to do. I don't think that's what Yeshua's point is here, right? And as we'll see, even after this story, we see repeated uh, affirmations that there is a physical uh, element to Yeshua's messianic role. There's a political element to Yeshua's messianic role that's going to uh, result in a literal kingdom on earth, right? But in the meantime, Yeshua replies, and so... This this reply, you know, blind receiving sight, lame walking. These are this is 
alluding back to all these prophecies in Isaiah, especially Isaiah 29, 18 to 19, Isaiah 35, 5 to 6. But especially, notice this last one. The poor have the good news preached to them. Anyone remember what it was that Yeshua read at the synagogue in Nazareth? If you go back to Luke 4, he reads this passage from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's interpreting what had just happened at the Jordan River where the Spirit came upon him. Because he has anointed me. Uh, He's the anointed one, the Mashiach, the Messiah. To, to do what? To proclaim good news to the poor. Right? What does Yeshua say at the beginning of the Beatitudes? Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. He's proclaiming this good news, right? This this gospel. He's evangelizing, right? So, Yeshua in his ministry is fulfilling that role set out for Messiah in the prophet Isaiah. So, you know, this is... This is not meant to be ambiguous. This is a a very clear, resounding, yes, (laughs) I am the Messiah. More than that, all of these things, the blind receiving their sight, lepers being cleansed, the deaf hearing, dead being raised, these are all aspects of the kingdom that is to come, right? And so, yes, there's a sense in which uh, in Yeshua's ministry here, there's... I mean, the kingdom has not come in its fullness yet, but there's all these little hints, all these little portents, all these little tastes of the kingdom. And Yeshua is that Messiah who ushers in the kingdom. Still, we have to admit, John had a good point with his question. And in fact, this question has been asked by many over the centuries and continues to be asked today. If Yeshua is really the Messiah... How come he didn't fulfill all the prophecies of Messiah? I mean, we have uh, a a much later vantage point to look back on than John did. And so, I mean, already for John, this was a difficult question. How much more difficult is it for us today, knowing that after Yeshua's death and resurrection, Israel was not delivered from the Romans. In fact, the opposite happened, and the Romans came and destroyed the temple and set Israel into this exile that's lasted thousands of years. This terrible judgment came instead, right? I think Yeshua knew this would be hard for some people to swallow, and that's why he adds, blessed is the one who, this translation says, is not offended by me. Personally, I think that's a bit of a weak translation. In uh, in Greek, the word is skandaliste. This is where, you know, um, we get the English word scandalize, but literally in, in Greek, it means to like to trip up over something, to stumble, right? Um, blessed is one who not, does not stumble uh, in me, who is not caused to stumble because of this, right? Um, it, it's even used in context of like being destroyed, of falling away from the faith, that sort of thing. It's not just a, you know, oh, I'm offended, you know taking offense kind of thing, but it's this is like a strong um, sort of stumbling. <laughs> this is alluding, of course, back to Isaiah 8.14, which speaks of Messiah as a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling. And, of course, this whole thing we're talking about here is the single biggest reason why the Jewish people uh, historically, uh, since the time of the Apostles, 
have rejected Yeshua as the Messiah, right? This this is what made Yeshua the stumbling stone for the Jewish people. Paul talks about how Yeshua is, you know, preaching the message of Yeshua's crucifixion is foolishness to the Greek, a stumbling block for the Jew, right? And and that persists today. How can he be the Messiah? He didn't bring in global peace. He didn't gather the exiles of Israel. He didn't do all these things that Messiah is supposed to do. This is something that will continue to come up. But I, I think, as we'll see, that those, if we want to call them earthly, physical promises of a coming kingdom, are not just thrown out. Uh, they are still at the forefront of what Yeshua's mission is. And we'll see that as we go. Uh, if we go down to verse 28, there's this cryptic statement that kind of pertains to what we're talking about here. And that is, Yeshua says, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. What are we supposed to make of this verse? Uh, at first glance and, and this is how some people have have taken this verse it sounds like what you know what Yeshua is saying is that uh, John's not going to be in the kingdom <laughs> the least person in the kingdom of God is greater than John so John's out of the kingdom you know and maybe some people might conclude well John had these doubts to the point that he didn't even make it into the kingdom he doubted Yeshua and that's why he doesn't even make it in the kingdom. Uh, I, I don't think that's what this is trying to say. Um, some have interpreted this in support of dispensational theology, uh, seeing a division between the Old Testament era and the New Testament era, right? John was the greatest of the Old Testament era, but even the least person in the New Testament era is greater than John, right? In other words, even the worst Christian is better than the best Jew. Again, I don't think uh, that interpretation uh, fits either the context or the overall theology of the apostles. I think what Yeshua is saying is this. In the kingdom, everyone will be filled to the spirit with such a great measure that it will surpass even the greatest of prophets in this era. Right? So, the one who is least in the kingdom will be greater than John is now. Uh, in There's a tradition, uh, This you can find this in uh, Leviticus Rabbah 114, uh, but I think there's some scriptures that allude to it as well, that in the Messianic era, everyone will know God on a level even higher than Moses. In Jewish tradition, Moses was the greatest prophet because, as it says in uh, Numbers talks about how, you know, most prophets see uh, vaguely, right? They As through a glass darkly, to use Paul's metaphor from 1 Corinthians 13. Whereas Moses sees face to face, right? Paul alludes to that in his chapter, uh, 1 Corinthians 13. Jeremiah 31, 34, all will know me. No, one, no man will teach his, his neighbor saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. So there's this sense that in the messianic era, the knowledge of God will be universal and 
we will all have access to this direct apprehension of God and who he is. And uh, now, as Paul says, now we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect passes away. Okay. I want to talk about some Pharisees because uh, we get a bunch of Pharisees coming up in our passage here in just a moment. Uh, look at verses 29 and 30 of Luke 7. When all the people heard this and the tax collectors too, they declared God just having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. Um, let's take a look back at the uh, John's ministry Okay, we see this in, in Matthew and in Luke. In Luke, he says, He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized, this is John the Baptist talking, he says to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Look at how Matthew says it. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You see the difference? In Luke's gospel, there's no mention of the Pharisees uh, coming out to John. In Matthew's gospel, uh, it does mention Pharisees and Sadducees, and those are the ones that 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 John the Baptist uh, speaks this message of rebuke to and the warning of this wrath that is coming. So in, in Luke, that's addressed to all the crowds, right? It's a, it's a mess, strong message of rebuke to all Israel. In, in Matthew, it's presented as a message to Israel's leaders. Uh, but, but yeah, the, this, the way Luke presents it uh, squares with the, what he says later, that they were not baptized by him. Now, I don't think Luke's point is that there wasn't a single Pharisee that was baptized by, by John, um, but that as a whole, this group as a whole, did not accept John's message of repentance. And Matthew agrees with him in uh, later in Matthew's gospel. But um, so we get this we get this portrait of the Pharisees as these people who are, you know, just opposed to what God is trying to do in these days. There's a difference, however, between the way Luke portrays the Pharisees and the way that Matthew and Mark portray the Pharisees and even the Gospel of John, um, especially in Matthew and in John, the Pharisees are portrayed consistently in negative terms. Matthew, you get the impression as you read Matthew that uh, he really didn't like the Pharisees. <laughs> so, Um, but in Luke, there's more of a mixed portrait that we get. In Luke, we, we do see negative references, but we also see positive references. Uh, here's a quick synopsis of, of how the Pharisees play out in the Gospel of Luke. So, the Pharisees grumble when Yeshua claims to forgive sins. The Pharisees grumble at Yeshua's choice of disciples. They object to Yeshua's Sabbath healings. They rejected both John's baptism and the purposes of God. They grumble at Yeshua's association with sinners. Yeshua criticizes the Pharisees for hypocrisy. 
The Pharisees try to trap Yeshua in his words. Luke depicts the Pharisees as lovers of money. Yeshua depicts the Pharisees as self-righteous. The Pharisees urge Yeshua to silence his disciples at the triumphal entry. You know, they're all call, uh, calling out Hosanna, blessed is the king of Israel. And the Pharisees are the ones saying, you know, you, you need to stop them from saying that. The Pharisees insist on circumcising Gentile believers, according to Acts 15. Okay, so so there are there are negative references to Pharisees in, in Luke and Acts, but we also see some surprisingly positive references to Pharisees. So the Pharisees listen to Yeshua's teaching. They're they're among uh his, his audience uh, and and not always in a antagonistic way either right uh the pharisees frequently invite him well i should say three times it's recorded that pharisees invite him to eat at their houses right so we see this uh, in the next story in luke chapter 7 uh, in verse 36 one of the pharisees asked him to eat with him and he went into the pharisee's house and reclined at the table so if the Pharisees were really that bad, it's strange that uh, they keep inviting Yeshua over to their house. If they really hated Yeshua so much, then, you know, that's, there's, obviously it's a more complex picture, right? Than, than just that they're all bad and that they all hated Yeshua. The Pharisees warn Yeshua about Herod's desire to kill him, right? They're, they're concerned about Yeshua's safety. Luke conspicuously avoid saying that the Pharisees ever sought to kill Yeshua. Uh, this is this is significant. In the other Gospels, uh, we read about how Yeshua, like for example, Yeshua does a healing on the Sabbath and the Pharisees don't like it, and then they go out and plot how they might destroy him or things like that. In Luke, he omits any reference to violence in what the Pharisees, how the Pharisees react to Yeshua. And uh, all the Gospels uh, leave out any reference to Pharisees when it comes to Yeshua's final trial and being sentenced to death. So the people that were responsible for condemning Yeshua to be crucified, that council, makeshift council, was composed of Sadducees and chief priests, right? The Pharisees are absent from that. And Luke is consistent with that, right? So in Luke... Uh, the Pharisees are not the ultimate bad guys. Uh, even even in the other Gospels, there there is a bit of ambiguity there. But but especially in Luke, he leaves out any reference to the Pharisees wanting to kill Yeshua. In the Book of Acts, we see how a Pharisee named Gamaliel defends the early followers of Yeshua before the council. Uh, we read about there being Pharisees among the believers, right? If you read Matthew, you get the impression that you can either be a follower of Yeshua or a Pharisee, but you can't be both. Well, in the book of Acts, we find out actually there were followers of Yeshua who still identified as Pharisees, one of which was no less than the Apostle Paul himself. He was a Pharisee and describes himself in the present tense as, I am a Pharisee before the council. And then again, the Pharisees defend Paul before the council in Acts 23. The Pharisees are the ones defending the believers in these instances. So, so Luke's portrait of the Pharisees is significantly more complex. Um, and it's, 
it's uh, th they're neither entirely good nor entirely bad, right? Uh, here's uh, an interesting uh, quote. This is from Jakob Yerville, uh scholar on Luke Acts. Uh, he wrote that uh, he notices that the section uh, that we have Mark 7, 1 to 23, which is paralleled in Matthew 15. This is where the Pharisees criticize Yeshua's disciples for not washing hands. And Yeshua responds by coming against their following the traditions of men, right? He says, you set aside the command of God to follow the traditions of men. Luke actually leaves that story out. That story isn't found in Luke's gospel. So the result is that Luke, this is a quote from Yerville, he says, Luke does not offer any criticism concerning the rejection of God's commandments in order to maintain the traditions of men that we see in Matthew and in Mark. Luke, on the contrary, asserts that the customs from the fathers are in harmony with the law. And he references Acts 6.14, 21.21, 28.17, and some other passages. The, the impression we get if we piece these different pieces of this puzzle together is that Luke had a less negative attitude towards the Pharisees and Pharisaic halakha than Matthew. Matthew seems to be very opposed to Pharisaic halakha. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, we have uh, Jerome from the 4th century. He's one of the church fathers. He preserves for us a few excerpts of these uh, writings of this group of Jewish believers known as the Nazarenes. Uh, and in these writings, this is these are excerpts from their commentary on Isaiah. Unfortunately, we don't have this actual commentary on Isaiah that was written by the Nazarenes. All we have are these little snippets that Jerome quotes. It's interesting that these snippets are very anti-rabbinic, very anti-rabbinic uh, halakha, uh, and just the whole program of rabbinic authority very against the rabbis rabbinic judaism um now these these nazarenes uh, were follower jewish followers of yeshua who kept torah so they they believe strongly in keeping torah but they they had a different interpretation of torah than the pharisees uh, or the, than the rabbis unfortunately we don't know the details of how their halakha differed uh, we just know that they depict the rabbis as leading Israel astray in their interpretation of Torah and specifically in their rejection of Yeshua. You, could, you can see a bit of continuity between that attitude towards the rabbis and Matthew's attitude toward the Pharisees. Luke presents a bit of a different portrait. Luke seems to be less anti-Pharisee, and there's a number of possibilities why. One possibility is that, I mean, I mean, look at the hero of the last half of the book of Acts. It's Paul, the Pharisee, right? So Luke doesn't want to be too harsh on the Pharisees because you know, one of his heroes is a Pharisee. Uh, you know, but yeah, you could respond to that by saying, well, Luke could have got around it by just leaving out that detail that Paul happened to be a Pharisee, or maybe saying that Paul used to be a Pharisee, but he's not anymore. So there seems to be something intentional about Luke's pro-Pharisaic stance. I want to suggest that it stems from 
Luke's position versus Matthew's position, where they're writing from, and the location of the communities that they're writing to. Matthew is probably writing to and in the context of a community of believers in Yeshua who were closer to the land of Israel and for whom Pharisaic authority was more of a threat against belief in Yeshua. Whereas Luke is probably writing to people perhaps in Rome. Uh, we don't know exactly where Theophilus lived, but maybe, maybe he's writing to believers in Rome. I think that's a strong possibility given that the book of Acts ends in Rome and seems to leave the rest of the story unsaid. Maybe the people he's writing to already knew the rest of the story. Uh, anyway, if that's the case, and especially if Luke is writing after the destruction of the temple, Luke is very sensitive to anti-Semitic ideas, I think. And he realizes that coming too hard against the Pharisees might lead people to just lump all Jews into one category, which historically happened in Christianity. People looked at the Pharisees, uh, Christians looked at the Pharisees and said, that's the way all Jews are, and had this hatred towards Jews and said, they're all self-righteous, legalistic hypocrites that reject Yeshua. That's what all Jews are, and characterized them like this. Is it possible that Luke and Matthew had different perspectives? I, I guess... Does that idea make you feel uncomfortable? Is it possible they even had slight different opinions in halakha? We don't know for sure. Um, I guess maybe that should tell us that today we should be a little more uh, gracious toward people who have different opinions uh, in regard to halakha. Uh, specifics of halakha and in regard to specifics of Jewish tradition. Uh, in the Messianic movement, I know that can be a controversial subject with some people being extremely anti-rabbi, anti-rabbinic tradition, um, and other people being uh, just as strong pro-rabbinic and pro-rabbinic tradition. You're not following Torah unless you're doing it the way the rabbis said. Maybe There may have been differences in that uh, area, among believers in the first century, and maybe that should give us an attitude of more grace toward differences that we see today and less uh, less insisting that the way we see things is the only legitimate way of seeing things. Anyway, that's some food for thought about Luke and the Pharisees. Okay, let's go to the parable of the sower. Um, could I get a volunteer to read Luke chapter 8? We're going to read all the way from verse 4 to verse 15. Would someone be willing to do that? I can read that. Sure, that'd be great. Starting at Luke 8 verse 4. And when a great multi multitude were coming together, and those from various cities were joining, uh, journeying to Journeying to him, he spoke by way. The sower went out to sow his seed, and he sowed some fell on beside the road, and it was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And other seed fell on rocky soil, and as soon as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it out. 
and other seeds fell into the good ground and grew up and produced a crop a hundred times as great. And he said, these things, and he would call out, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And his disciples began questioning him as to what the parable might be. And he said, to you it is granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is in parables in order that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God, and those beside the road, and those who have heard, then the devil comes and takes away from the word from their heart, so that it may not they may not believe and be saved. And those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no firm root. They believe for a while, and in time of temptation fall away. And the seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard, and as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and the riches and pleasures of this life, and bring forth no fruit to maturity. And the seed in the good ground, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart, and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. Uh, what verse do you want to go to? Uh, that's good. Okay. Yeah, thank you. All right. So, uh, of course, the parable of the sower is one of the uh, most famous parables. Uh, everyone hears it over and over again in Sunday school. <laughs> uh, it's the the parable that you hear reference possibly the most uh now maybe the good samaritan would be a, a close competitor but there's uh i've heard several different interpretations of this parable you know it's interesting that even though yeshua gives us the interpretation <laughs> There's still a bit of ambiguity about how exactly is this supposed to be applied. Uh, is this so? So the the seed is the word. We we got that straight, right? The word of God. Um, and you'll notice that the the seed falls on four different kinds of ground. Uh, in the first case, in the path the seed doesn't even have the chance to germinate. It just gets snatched away, right away. The second case, on the rock, it germinates, it grows, but it doesn't mature. It, it withers away. It dies before it can mature. The third place, among the thorns, it grows up, and uh, but it's, it's not able to bear fruit, right? So it, it grows and gets uh, gets big but it doesn't bear fruit the last one it germinates it grows it matures and it bears fruit hundredfold which by the way is uh, an allusion to the Torah where Isaac plants a crop and yields a hundredfold um, we read that recently so this uh, there's this progression, right? Four different types of 
receptions of the word of God. Who is the one? Uh, who is the sower? In Luke's version, it doesn't exactly tell us. Uh, but let's take a look at in uh, the way Luke uh, relates the the explanation. It doesn't say who the sower is. It says uh, just that the seed is the word of God, right? Uh, look at uh, in Mark's version. It says the sower sows the word. Um, in in Matthew's version, when anyone hears it, it doesn't say who sows it either. It just says when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is, this is in uh, the parable of the weeds, as it's told in Matthew 13. Uh, when Yeshua explains the parable, he says, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. So it's not explicit that that's supposed to be applied here as well, but I think it's implied. The one sowing the seed here is Yeshua, Messiah, right? That's, that's the one who's sowing. So one, now, possibly this could be applied to other people sowing the word, right? So, so one way that this is commonly interpreted is that this, this is a parable about what happens when you go out and preach the gospel, right? You give a big sermon of preaching the gospel to this crowd of people, and, uh, you know, some of them are going to be like each of these four categories of recipients, right? This is... Um, these are the this is talking about the variety of responses to gospel preaching in general uh it, it, i think we could maybe make an application to that effect but i think in the context especially in the context of luke the meaning is more specific this is not just talking about the re variety of responses to gospel preaching in general it's also not just talking about the variety of responses to Yeshua's gospel preaching, although there is that. I want to suggest that this is talking about the response of Yeshua's the response to Yeshua's message of repentance. Yeshua is the sower, not us, in, in the immediate context of Luke. And I want to suggest, is, is it possible that this is not outlining a diversity of individual responses so much as outlining four potential corporate responses of the nation of Israel to Yeshua's message of repentance? Right? In, in that sense, this is, this is very similar to the message of the the wise and foolish builders that I mentioned at the beginning of this session, right? The the wise builders are the one the, the wise builder uh, listens to Yeshua's word and puts it into practice. In other words, it bears fruit in keeping with repentance, right? That's what John the Baptist talks about. John the Baptist stresses the importance of bearing fruit of repentance, and so the fruit here I'm going to suggest is the same. It's repentance. Right? The fruit of repentance. That's the goal, is to bear fruit. Luke 3, 8 to 9. And we're going to see that come up again in, uh, in Luke 13. This message of the fruit of repentance. So, if, 
as I'm suggesting, this is talking about four potential corporate responses to Yeshua's message. Uh, it's it's more than just yeah. Some people are going to accept it, and some people won't. It's that this. I mean, this is our central question: Is Israel going to accept this message of repentance or not? Is Israel going to respond to Yeshua's ministry in an appropriate way, or are they going to reject him, reject Yeshua? And as we see there, uh, so in in one sense, this parable is outlining the fact that there are a lot of potential pitfalls that make an effective response to Yeshua's message unlikely. And I think that ties in closely with this quote that Yeshua throws in at the at the uh, beginning of the parable, or at the beginning of his explanation, I should say. We looked at this at the beginning of our session. To you it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables so that, and then he quotes, from Isaiah chapter 6. Seeing they may not see, hearing they may not uh, understand. Uh, Luke's version is quite abbreviated. If we look at the uh, the way it's told, uh, Mark gives it a bit longer and Matthew gives it the longest, uh, the longest quotation from uh, this, this uh, passage in Isaiah 6. I, I want to uh, quickly turn there to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah 6 begins with this this vision that Isaiah has in the temple of uh, the year King Uzziah died, and he sees the Lord on his throne, and he sees the angels crying, holy, 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 the cherubim. And, uh, you know, his response is, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, you know, I, I'm, I'm undone, I'm lost, I'm, I'm doomed. And then the seraphim comes with a burning coal and touches Isaiah's lips and says, uh, your guilt is taken away, your sin is atoned for. And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah says, Here I am, send me. There's this dynamic um, sending of the, the prophet Isaiah, uh, this commission, the prophet Isaiah. And uh, um, Isaiah is given this mission. Verse 9. Go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste. For, and the Lord removes people far away. And for the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. What's this talking about? It's talking about exile. Isaiah was commissioned to proclaim a prophetic mission, a prophetic message that was not going to be popular and uh, is something that none of us, none of us should envy his, his job there, Right. He, his mission was to go and preach to a people a message of repentance, knowing that they will reject it and incur upon themselves God's judgment, which would result in destruction and exile. I think Yeshua is saying his mission is the same mission. He realizes already at this stage in the, in the Gospel of Luke, um, he 
knows full well that Israel will reject his message, right? Um, he knows the over, overall response. Of course, there's going to be individual exceptions. There's going to be a lot of people responding positively. And even by the end of the book of Acts, we're going to see multitudes of Jews who follow Yeshua, who are zealous for Torah. But the overall message, the, the overall response of Israel to Yeshua's message will be rejection. And so what Yeshua is saying is, you know, most of the people in Israel are going to fall into these first three categories. They're going to reject it and they're not going to bear the fruit of repentance, which is a, a tragic conclusion to come to. And this relates to the question we asked at the beginning of our session today, and that is why, why did Yeshua speak in parables? Was it to uh, make it easier for the crowds to understand, or was it to make it harder for the crowds to understand? And I think the right answer, looking, reading carefully, in, in this context, that's not the case with every parable, but in this context... I think the right answer is it's a bit of both. That the people's lack of response to Yeshua's message and their inability to understand that message go hand in hand and is a symptom of their failure to respond to God's call to repentance. And so... So John, John's warning about the coming destruction and Yeshua's warning about the coming destruction, you know, we're, we're getting the impression that we're being set up to see what choice Israel is going to make given these two alternatives presented to them. All right, and I think we'll have to end off there and continue... Uh, with the rest of chapter 8 next time. Um, any thoughts or questions on any of this so far? I have a question concerning the, uh, the verse about John the Baptist, um, where he says, I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Um, is he referring to the fact that John is a prophet? or, is it, or um, and, and then in that... Uh, I guess in that context, how does Moses fit into this? Because I think the traditionally we believe that Moses was the greatest prophet because God spoke to him face to face. Yeah, uh, yeah, that, those are good questions. So, um, the first uh, simple answer is that. Uh, as believers, we know that Moses wasn't the greatest prophet because obviously Yeshua was the greatest prophet. <laughs> um, so, and Yeshua came. Uh, Moses set a pattern that Yeshua follows and exceeds, right? So there is that. Um, uh, part of the Jewish insistence that Moses was the greatest prophet is a bit of an anti-Christian polemic uh, in that sense. Right. So we as believers are not necessarily beholden to the idea that Moses was the greatest. Now, uh, what the, the point of that passage in Numbers, is it Numbers 11? 
Uh, no, that's not it. It's somewhere around there. Um, where it describes uh, Moses' level of prophecy. It's in Numbers chapter 12. Uh, it says, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. So, maybe there's a difference between level of prophecy and level of greatness. Um Does Yeshua mean to exclude Moses when he says that John was the greatest person born of women? I, I, I don't think that's necessarily Yeshua's point. I don't think we're supposed to take this as an absolute greatest in all of time uh, assessment. It could also be that Yeshua is speaking in the present tense among those alive today who are born of women none is greater than John. I don't know. Those are possibilities. Well, that sounds right. That sounds good. I think the, uh, yeah, of those that are alive today, maybe makes the most sense. Yeah. Is he excluding himself then? As John says that he is unworthy to untie his sandals. Right. That's a good, a good question. Um, I, I mean, maybe maybe Yeshua is just being humble, right? <laughs> uh, obviously, we know that Yeshua is greater than John, and John makes that clear, and the rest of the the Gospels and the apostolic writings make that clear. Um, so again, I'm not convinced that Yeshua is trying to make an absolute uh, categorical statement that applies across all of time, and and uh, that. John is the greatest person that has ever and will ever live. Could it have something to do with the fact that John would have been the most, I don't know if qualified, but like he knew of Yeshua and the, and that he was Messiah pretty much from before he was born. Right. So, could it have something to do with his intimate knowledge of who Yeshua was and what his ministry would be and and that his whole ministry was about pointing the way to that as sort of a John is the most important message to be listening to, mm. you know, something along those lines. Yeah, that makes sense. Um it, it is really interesting how, uh, for example, in the book of Acts, when Ju after Judas has killed himself, they have to pick a, a person to replace him as one of the twelve. And they one of the qualifications is that he had to have been with us from the days of John the Baptist, meaning he had to have been through John the Baptist's ministry and through Yeshua's ministry um, in order to qualify. So there's something, uh, yeah, it seems like, there's a lot of importance placed on what John did um, in preparation for Yeshua's ministry. One question that I had um, also, you were talking about, you know, John's, 
questioning of Yeshua if he was Messiah, could it be partially in that, like, we have the advantage of having seeing the first coming and and then revelation coming as being almost not two different people, but the two sides of Messiah. Yeah. And he wasn't seeing second section coming to fruition and questioning that as well. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, and I think there is a sense in which uh, I, I know I've been trying to stress the fact that in Luke, the way Luke presents it, this uh, coming kingdom and Messiah's role is still very physical and political in this worldly. Uh, but there is a, a definitely a sense in which Yeshua's ministry and his message went against conventional expectations uh and even uh, like you look at the sermon on the plane that we were looking at last time and and the whole message is like one of choosing the path of lowliness and suffering as opposed to the path of aggression and violence and and uh, you know we're gonna raise up an army and overthrow rome and and this will become even more strong in, in just a few chapters where Yeshua tells his followers to take up their cross and follow him. I mean, that was really count, a counterintuitive thing for uh, that you would expect a Messiah to say, right? Like a king? What are you talking about? And, and so this whole dynamic of the path of suffering that Yeshua is calling his followers to to embrace and to follow him in. I mean, he's blazing that trail, right? Uh, that was something that I think was not on their radar at all. And and of course, for us, we think, oh, that's natural. We know Yeshua came to die and save us from our sins, but that was not that was not part of their conception of Messiah, and to a large degree. So, do you do you think that a lot of what John was expecting? we see in revelation and and so he like it yeah what yeshua was doing was was defying his expectation not seeing the suffering servant part of of it but expecting the ruling king part of it and so therefore not seeing the the split in time mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, I think you're right there. That uh, this is, uh, yeah, we're able to separate it, like you said, you know, the first coming and the second coming, and yeah, he'll take care of that at the second coming, but John didn't have that vantage point, and so he's wondering, where is all this stuff that Messiah is supposed to do? And, you know, and, and, and that's the answer to the Jewish objection to Yeshua being the Messiah. Well, how come he didn't do all this stuff that Messiah is supposed to do? Well, we we believe he will at his second coming. And I think Luke is very insistent that he will. Um, historically, the church has mostly argued, no, he's not going to ever do that. 
the second coming is just going to be to take us all to heaven or something like that, right? So, um, yeah, this is where uh, what I, I'm uh, what we're seeing in Luke goes against those historical uh, Christian assumptions of what Messiah is supposed to do. So it seems like, you know, Judaism has held to to half of the role of Messiah and upheld that as, you know, this is what Messiah is supposed to do. And sort of, uh, to a large extent, not completely, of course, but to a large extent, overlooked the suffering aspect of Messiah. Uh, whereas Christianity has done the opposite. Again, not completely. Obviously, there are a lot of Christians today that believe Yeshua will return and literally fulfill some of these things, but the majority of Christianity for the majority of history has regarded that as heresy, <laughs> as Jewish heresy. That's what the Jews believe. We we Christians don't believe that. Well, is there, like, along with that, is that almost like a separation between our physical world and and the political landscape and what Yeshua came to do in in forgiveness of sin and rescuing from the sinful nature to create and establish the kingdom, which is both physical, political, but but more spiritual or or what if you want to call it equal, whichever, but that that without the spiritual, there can't actually really truly be the establishment of the kingdom free of sin without that being taken care of first. Oh, Ben, I was only going to say good night. Okay. And thank you for your lesson. All right. Yeah. Thank it's, you. It's getting late. So, uh, well, I... for me anyway. Yeah. <laughs> All okay, right. good night, everyone. Have a good night. Thanks, everyone, for joining in, and uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to this audio teaching. The goal of Segula is to cast a vision for a healthy and mature Messianic Torah movement. This series of teachings on Luke Acts is made possible through the help of our ministry partners and supporters. For more information about this ministry, 